0: Thanks for being with us on this Thursday afternoon. Coming up on the program, we're going to take a deeper look at vaccine rollout federally. Some new numbers today, some quick math, trying to figure out how many doses are per each shipment and will that $4 million number be met. So, well, David Aiken is going to join us in about a half an hour to bring us the very latest on that. Also coming up, we're talking universal basic salary. A lengthy study out of UBC shows it's not perhaps... The best tool when it comes to lifting people out of poverty. So instead of a basic income, what could be done? We're going to take a look at that in the second hour of the program. First, though, people planning parties might sound completely foreign, As in, nobody is really doing that right now. Unless you're planning them for a long time down the road. That just seems like something you wouldn't be doing, again, unless it's hope that you're planning for when we can perhaps go back to the safe six people, that core bubble. And you are looking forward to maybe having a couple of people in that bubble. I know people have been doing that through the pandemic, even though the current public health order means that you can't. But a Langley food store owner and caterer has been asked several times times to fill party orders and well-seasoned owner Angie Qualley joins me on the line now. Angie, so great to chat with you today you know what Angie's line just dropped out we're having a couple technical difficulties so we're going to get to Angie back on uh, the line uh, to talk about that so let's uh, talk about what else is coming up on the program also going to take a look at uh, a lottery ticket that was purchased on Vancouver Island and heads up to anybody living on Vancouver Island if you have a ticket that's not claimed you could be sitting on one million dollars and we're going to talk a bit more about that uh, coming up on the program all right I think we have reconnected with Angie Quali now Angie so great to have- have you on the show. Hi Jill, great talking to you. Uh, I first saw this and I know you posted about it. It seems a bit ridiculous but how many requests have you been getting uh, for uh, to cater large parties? Um, we get the
1: occasional one in the last few months for sure but just in the last, I don't know, less than a week, probably in the last four or five days we've had at least three requests. Uh, one for a baptism, one for a, a Super Bowl party and another party that they didn't specify the occasion but I don't know. It's just surprising to me after, you know, the provincial health office has asked us to sort of double down on our efforts. that all of a sudden, people are interested in partying
0: again. It just seems so counterproductive. Uh, so what do you say when you have someone on the line that says, hey, I, I want to cater my Super Bowl party?
1: <laughs> well, obviously, we're not participating in these events, and I refer them to the provincial or to the bcc to c website that Outlines all of the parameters for the kinds of gatherings we're allowed to have or not have, and um, I don't know. I you know, uh, people don't. This isn't a new situation, Jill. So I'm not sure why people still have questions about what's allowed or not allowed. Um, like
0: I said, it's it's a frustrating situation. And is there any ca- any possibility that these calls are coming from people that maybe live in large households?
1: Um, sure. I don't. <laughs> I personally don't know anybody that has 30 people in their house, but I suppose it's possible. But when I refer them to the CDC website, um, they don't write back and say, oh, these are my entire family. This is my bubble.
0: So um, I, I don't know anybody that has 30 people in their house. Do you? Uh, no, not off the top of my head. No. <laughs> and, and yeah, you would think if somebody was adhering to the rules, they could make that argument or they could tell you, oh, no, don't don't worry. This is what it's for. And you would hear back from them or they would make that that uh, counter when you were with them on the phone.
1: Right. So we've done things at Christmas time, you know, for offices. So we have some really great corporate clients here in Langley who wanted to do a Christmas dinner. And this is how we did our staff party. We did a Christmas dinner, but everybody we packed it up and everybody took it home. So some of our corporate clients, they were ordering 100 dinners for two that were packaged in individual containers that all of their employees either picked up at the office or took home at the end of the workday. So there's that kind of stuff going on, but um, and that's completely acceptable. Um, but having a single party with trays of food that people are sharing is is not acceptable at all.
0: No, even if you were breaking the rule of having a number of people, that the the double dipping and the sharing of the platters takes it to a different level altogether, I think. I mean,
1: double dipping is bad enough (laughs) before
0: COVID, (laughs) but certainly now it's even worse. Uh, And and did you, did you get the impression, or it must have crossed your mind when you were on the phone, because it just does seem so unbelievable. Did you ever think for a second, oh, is this somebody trying to catch me seeing if I'll agree to it and and I'll break the rules?
1: Yeah. I mean, that occurred to me for sure because there was three requests in a couple of days and um, they came by email, uh, not over the phone. And, um, so, you know, it did occur to me that maybe people are spot checking, or maybe, you know, maybe it's the province that doesn't have time for inspectors, but they're finding out from caterers if they're actually participating in these events. Because I know, I know there are companies that are taking orders like this. And I mean, it has been a tough time for everybody in hospitality, no question. But I feel like there's a light at the end of the tunnel and, you know, we've spent the last year, literally a year, adhering to all of these rules and everybody doing the very best they can. So I can't imagine sort of quitting now. Um, we're so close to hopefully what, what looks like the
0: end. And I was going to ask you how your business has been, because you, like so many other businesses, must have taken a hit. And I could see why it would be tempting. Somebody calls and says, I need an 18-person party catered to say, turn a bit of a blind eye and say yes.
1: Sure. I mean, you know, my business, we're a retail store, so we sell specialty food and the meals we make in the store, then another third of my business was the cooking school that's been closed since last March. And the last third of my business was our catering. And that's been closed, you know, other than the, you know, packaged specialty stuff we've done that I just mentioned, that's been closed. So two thirds of my business has been impacted significantly by these changes. Uh, The retail side has been really strong and we have an amazing customer base here. And um, we're doing lots of, you know, curbside pickup and we're selling tons of our frozen meals and entrees from the
0: store. But for sure, it's had an impact on us, too. Well, thanks for coming and talking about this on the program today. And uh, hopefully you don't get any more calls or people realize that now is not the time to be having big parties and sharing trays of food. And like you said, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. So let's keep focused on that. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Jill. Have a great day. Well, the federal government is insisting this country will get the promised 4 million doses of Pfizer's coronavirus vaccine by the end of March. Uh, there were many questions about that uh, this morning.
2: Pfizer is, uh, doing a, is using a different uh, calculation that we my team is currently using
3: he says the document the government has shared with the provinces that says we're only getting three and a half million doses is a soft number is a conservative figure of five doses per vial until it changes
0: that is general danny fortin who is in charge of the rollout let's bring in now to talk more about this david aiken global news chief political correspondent david thanks so much for joining us
3: hey jill happy to be here
0: well it seems like there was a lot of confusion over the numbers this morning
3: There's no confusion in premier's offices, and I've spoke to a couple, and they got a spreadsheet this morning that was signed off on by Major General Fortin, uh, dated today, a source, email from Pfizer, and here's what that spreadsheet told them. The spreadsheet said that by the end of March, in the first quarter of the year, Canada will have received 3.5 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine. Now, why is that number important? Because the last time that General Fortin sent the provinces this spreadsheet... It was in January the 5th, and at that time it was 4 million doses. So premiers were getting this thing this morning, about 10 o'clock Eastern, and you know I'm making my rounds, my calls, and a couple of them are saying, wait a minute, uh, we've been told all along, and the prime minister as recently as yesterday in question period was saying Canada's going to get 4 million doses of Pfizer by the end of March. Everybody don't worry. And here they had a piece of paper from the general in charge of the distribution plan saying, sorry, only 3.5 million are coming. So that's what the premier's uh, offices were receiving. Now, uh, in his press briefing today, General Fortin gave his press briefing here in Ottawa about a, about noon Eastern. Remember the premiers were getting this info at 10 Eastern. In any anyway, event, what General Fortin is saying is, Pfizer is still telling Canada, we're on track to give you 4 million. And as it turns out, as we've done more digging, here's how we interpret these numbers. That 3.5 million number that was in the table today that every province got was based on five doses in every vial that Pfizer ships to Canada. Remember, Pfizer doesn't ship a dose. They Mm -hmm. ship a vial, right? Mm -hmm. And right now, Health Canada says you can only get five doses out of that dial. So all our calculations are based on number of vials coming to the country. And based on that, it looks like 3.5 million are coming. But here's the thing. The United States some European countries have already uh, said, uh, after Pfizer asked them, saying, no, no, you can get six doses out of every vial, not just five, six. Health Canada is now reviewing this new request from Pfizer to say, can we go from five to six doses? And if we go from five to six, that means even if we get the same number of vials we're now going to have more doses because there's six doses in a vial. Everybody following along in the math here? <laughs> yeah. So so if that happens, that's where Fortin says, then we start to get back to 4 million. And as it turns out, the PMO phoned me up and said, in any event, even if Health Canada doesn't say, okay, go to six six doses of vial from five, even if Health Canada does not make that approval change, and it, Health Canada does have to approve that. That's part of our, our system of regulation. Then apparently Pfizer has said to the federal government, don't worry. If it stays at five doses of vial, we'll simply send you more vials. And that will get us to our four million. Now that's what Fortin says and the PMO. And at this point, you have to take them on faith. But for a lot of premiers right across the country, faith is a little bit eh, not so sure about that right now. They want it in, you know, they want to see the numbers. And it's important, of course, as you've probably talked about, Provinces need to know how many doses are coming and when because they have to plan for the right number of needles, the right kind of needles. Apparently, the six-dose vials, you need a a different kind of needle – so we got to buy those. So there's a lot of things provinces need to know well ahead of time in terms of staffing, equipment, et cetera. And that's why these, these weekly dose counts are really, really important to the provinces.
0: Well, it also seems like you mentioned where we were seeing other countries who have realized that there is six, there are six doses in these vials, uh, that we might have been a little bit more proactive in making sure we had the correct syringes or were realizing that that might come into play. That might be a very important factor here.
3: You know, I've been told that some provinces, even though, again, Health Canada has approved five doses of vial, um, I've been told that some provinces are trying to squeeze an extra dose out of the vials because this is the week, of course, Jill. We're getting no Pfizer vaccine, zero. And th- the problem here is, as you probably talked about, fi- all the vaccine we get from Pfizer is is manufactured at a factory in Belgium. Even though Pfizer's got a manufacturing facility in Michigan, uh, the U.S. gets all that stuff, we get all ours from Belgium. And Pfizer wanted to retool the Belgian factory so it could produce like just an incredible amount of vaccine and for the long term. But in the short term, it meant it had to turn the factory off basically, shut it down, bring in some new equipment. And it's doing that this week. And in the meantime, we're, we're getting nothing from Pfizer. But Pfizer has said, don't worry, we'll make it up with increased shipments in March. And presumably, Pfizer is manufacturing for a lot of other countries, you know, vials that say you can take six doses out of this. So, yeah, could we be more proactive? I suppose we are going to need more needles and and uh, different needles. And General Fortin was asked about that because the federal government is essentially the procurement agency for all the provinces. So if we need 30 million new syringes... Um, or better yet, put it this way, if B.C. needs, you know, a couple million new syringes, it's really the federal government that is going to purchase those on international markets on behalf of B.C., on behalf of Alberta, behalf of Saskatchewan, and distribute that. So the federal government is doing that. They're in the market now for new syringes that are ready for the six-dose vials. Uh if you follow along there. It's pretty complicated, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I didn't think we'd be talking about this type of math. Uh, Just one more point, David. If we don't go in this direction, the six-dose route, does that mean we're leaving doses and we're wasting a bunch of vaccine?
3: There has been those suggestions, and that's one of the reasons Pfizer, the manufacturer, has been saying to its customers, listen, you can squeeze six doses out of the vial. I mean, obviously, Pfizer wants all the doses that can be used. And you hear different things from different healthcare workers. I mean, um, you you know, it's, it's, of course, a vial's just got a a certain amount of liquid in it and sometimes a little little spillage, uh, et cetera. So it really depends on the healthcare worker, the public health unit, uh, the the particular government as to uh, how much or if any uh, is being wasted, or if more vaccine essentially is going into people's arms. In other words, if, if I can get by with one-sixth of a vial in my arm and still have the, uh, you know, uh, it's still going to work, uh, why are you giving me one-fifth, you know, more, in other words, of the vaccine, right? Yeah. So these are the things still to be sorted out between you know, And I mean, let's give people this benefit of the doubt. We are moving at warp speed here. I mean, the vaccine was developed in, in you know in a year. The fastest ever was six years. And the manufacturer is learning how these things work. All the public health units involved are learning how to move this thing around. Then, um, of course, the Pfizer is the one with the special freezing requirements. It's got to be kept at ice cold, super ice cold temperatures. So a lot of moving parts communications key and again today the confusion was Premier's got uh, you know a pretty detailed list from the guy in charge of uh, the general in charge of the distribution in Canada that said we're going to be a half a million short by the end of March and then the guy who's in charge general Fortin, says no 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 don't worry we're, we're, we're gonna make it up trust me and, one way or know, another trust me yeah trust
0: <laughs> me is uh, it depends on where you sit whether you're going to believe that all right we'll keep watching this David Aiken thanks so much for joining us appreciate it.
3: Hey, okay, no problem. Cheers.
0: Well, we have been talking a lot about a universal income. Is it the time to bring that in? That argument or discussion, at least, has been brought on a lot by the pandemic with the use of CERB for people that had lost their jobs and who had no income coming in. But a new report shows that there are better tools that could help create a more just society. Joining me to talk more about this report is Dr. Jonathan Reese kesselman Professor Emeritus at the SFU School of Public Policy. Thanks so much for being with us.
4: Glad to join.
0: Uh, this was a study uh, that uh, comes to us uh, out of UBC. Some very interesting findings. It's a lengthy report. So I will admit right off the top, I have not read all 529 pages. Uh, uh huh. Sure. <laughs> I have gone through, I've skimmed through uh, the report. But what do you think about this idea that it's not a universal basic income that's going to be uh, kind of the, the solution to this, that there are other better tools?
4: Sure. Uh, First of all, it's being released through UBC, but it's actually an official report to the government, funded and mandated by the uh, BC government. Okay. Um, We have taken a really deep look. We had two and a half years. We had a lot of resources, uh, great cooperation from a number of the BC government ministries, Um, and we were asked should B.C. implement a basic income, and we were asked whether it should try a pilot project on a basic income, and after lots of analysis, lots of reading, and commissioning more than 40 expert studies, our answer to both of those is no. We think a more complex and a more extensive set of policies are needed we do not feel that simply sending a check, uh, possibly at the level of the poverty line, which would be monthly checks equal to 20000 a year per individual. We do not think that that would do the job, be more, the most effective use of funds. Moreover, it would be a massive bill for B.C. government. It would require uh, more than doubling all taxes, personal tax, sales tax, corporate tax, you name it. Uh, we know politically that's a non-starter. I, it would be about $51 billion a year if sent out universally to everyone uh, between ages 18 and 64. And even if you phased it down and made it non-universal so that it declined with a person's income, you'd still be at $17 billion, which is... Uh, more than total personal income taxes collected by the province. So uh, cost is an issue, and actually making it work, making it responsive to people when their income falls would be a challenge. And, of course, our current income assistance system does it, but using the the uh, income tax system operated by the Canada Revenue Agency on behalf of the provinces, That has delays of more than a year. We file once a year. Uh, It's retrospective. People falling into poverty would have to wait up to uh, 18 months or longer to get their their first check. Um, It simply has too many problems, and we propose renovating the income assistance system in ways that we feel are consistent with making BC a more just society in a way that a basic income, apart from being uh, uh, fiscally uh, out of the question, uh, could not do.
0: I know that the report and the panel made 65 recommendations. Can you go through a couple? We won't have time for all of them, but can you go through a couple of the ones that you think would be perhaps that would have the biggest impact?
4: Okay. Um, A couple that we think could be done pretty quickly and have some urgency in terms of justice, would be improving the income support and housing for women fleeing domestic violence. Uh, second, youth aging out of care between 800 and a thousand individuals age out of foster care each year. And the outcomes for them in terms of uh, jobs, unemployment, addictions, uh, criminal justice system are horrendous, and we are recommending both services improved and actually a form of basic income for that group. In terms of the income assistance system, which is split between disability and temporary assistance, uh, 70% of people on that now are in the disability category. We feel that should be in effect expanded to a basic income. So we, we're looking at targeted basic incomes. Uh, we feel the the benefit levels should be raised to what we guarantee to any senior in Canada, which is close to the poverty line. Um, we believe for the temporary assistance, that it includes people who are employable as well as ones who are uh, facing problems so they're not immediately employable. We want to increase the benefits somewhat, not as much, but the current benefit of $760 a week. Uh, If most listeners think about that, I think they'll quickly understand why people are, uh, you know, digging around in, in bins downtown and panhandling, et cetera. It's inadequate, but there we want to...
0: Sorry, Uh, just to to clarify, you said $760 a week. Did you mean month? uh, uh, Sorry, yes, per month, per month. All right. Uh, There
4: we want to do things to somewhat increase the benefits, not make it a basic income. Uh, Do things to reduce the the, uh, stigma, such as the asset test, make it easier to get on. But at the same time, we also want to address the working poor who are not on income assistance to to make it fairer treatment and more attractive for people to remain at work, like supplementing their earnings, which three other provinces do, BC does not, although there is a federal program. We want to um, give them some people on income assistance some greater incentive to earn and to get back in the workforce. And we want to extend some of the health and dental benefits that are now available for being on welfare, but if you're among the working poor, you do not get all of them. So those are some of the things we're looking at. And so it's a mix of improving and expanding access to basic services along with some, what we would call targeted basic incomes, but not a universal basic income and not one paid and eligible for the entire working age population.
0: And you kind of touched on this, and I think the report does this as well, because one of the concerns we often hear is that people, whether they are on some type of assistance program or on a disability benefit, the clawback of wages, of income that they are able to make in addition to that, sometimes it can make it seem not even worth it. Is there there room there to, to change that and not actually penalize people who are also able to make some income?
4: Yes, our recommendations address that currently on disability assistance. A person can earn fifteen thousand in a year without losing anything when they earn uh, beyond that though the first dollar they earn, they lose a dollar of benefits and you know it's what we call a hundred percent benefit reduction rate for people on temporary assistance, it is now per month exemption they can earn, and after that, it's this 100% tax-back rate. For both groups, we want to reduce that tax-back rate. Ideally, we'd like it very low, but then the programs become extremely costly and uh, start to engage a much larger part of the the population. For both of them, we'd like to reduce that tax-back or benefit reduction rate to 70%. And that is among our recommendations.
0: All right. It's a very uh, interesting report and certainly something that we have been talking about uh, for the past few months. Uh, Dr. Kesselman, thank you so much for being with us and talking about this today.
4: Okay, glad to be with you.
0: Well, there are some reports surfacing coming from people who are suffering with long term effects of COVID 19. And we've come up with that phrase, long haulers. And there have been many reports of that. But these stories have to do with people who are unable to return to work. In many cases, they have tried to go back to work and just can't. They get absolutely exhausted. They're sent back and bedridden for days recovering, even from trying to work for one full day. And then they've got on to try and claim long-term disability only to be denied from their insurance provider. So what do you do if you're in that scenario? Joining me now is James Fireman, disability lawyer with Samfiru Tamarkin, LLP. James, thanks so much for being with us.
2: Jill, thank you so much for having me back on the show. It's always a pleasure, especially to talk about an issue that's obviously really important. It's in the news right now. Is something that is affecting thousands of people across the country.
0: And so we're talking about people that have the long-term effects of COVID-19. Is part of the issue we might, uh, in some cases, we're also talking about people who maybe never actually got a positive diagnosis?
2: Yeah, I think that's really a huge part of it. So even if you had a positive diagnosis at a certain point, you're not going to be able to detect the COVID in your system. I'm not a doctor, but that's just what's out there. And then there are a lot of people who might have had mild symptoms and never got tested. And by the time they got around to it, it had left their system as well. But they're left with these lingering symptoms that completely prevent them from being able to work. And it's really a huge portion. I've seen action reports as high as 50 to even 80 percent of people suffering from these types of symptoms even three months after first getting diagnosed.
0: Uh, So what do you do in that scenario then? Because I would think, uh, many people would think it would be straightforward. Uh, You go, Maybe you take sick time, then you maybe have to go on short-term disability. And if you're still not better, you go on long-term disability. But uh, there are many reports that I've seen of people saying it just wasn't that easy.
2: Yeah, no, that's absolutely correct. So insurers are you know, seeing an opportunity here to try and save some money. And so they're saying, well, okay, you don't have a positive COVID test anymore, so you're okay. Therefore, you don't have a positive diagnosis, you must be able to work. But that's not what the disability policies say, and that's not what the law is. The law is actually really clear. It has nothing to do with the diagnosis. It has nothing to do with whether or not you are presently showing a positive COVID test, or even if you had one in the past. The focus is on your symptoms. If your symptoms are preventing you from being able to work, then you're entitled to long-term disability benefits. And this is the same thing they've been doing for years. It's just a new opportunity for them to apply it. But it does not matter if you have a particular diagnosis. If the medical science hasn't advanced to the point where they're able to figure out exactly what it is that's causing your condition, that doesn't mean that you're able to work. If your symptoms are preventing you from work, you're entitled to disability benefits. That's what these people are paying premiums for. And they're entitled to get the benefits that they've been paying for. Uh,
0: because this can happen in other scenarios as well. I know if somebody has an autoimmune disease, it can sometimes take a couple of years, if not longer, to get an exact diagnosis. But if in that time your symptoms, uh, you've had a flare up or your, systems, your symptoms have become so bad, uh, you would be applying for it in that time. So how do you go about to even in, say, pre-COVID times, this would have been something that had come up for people?
2: Well, the reality is insurance companies are relying on the fact that most people aren't going to get legal help. Most people are just going to take their word for it and say, "Okay, well, I guess if I don't have a diagnosis, it must be so. But as soon as you bring a legal claim, they know that if they're not reasonable, it's eventually going to wind up in front of a judge and they're not going to be very happy. (laughs) And in particular, when you're talking about COVID, I think the reaction that you're going to see from insurance companies is that they're going to be very quick to come to the table and try and get it resolved. Because the one thing they really do not want is for there to be a reported decision from a court where a judge is saying that no, these people that have COVID symptoms are entitled to long-term disability benefits. As soon as one of these cases reaches a court and a judge makes a decision like that, all of these insurance companies are in real big trouble because it's gonna get widespread attention across the national media and people are gonna understand that this line that this line that the insurers have been feeding them is absolutely untrue and that they are entitled to benefits and they're going to start seeking legal help a lot quicker.
0: And is it because in some cases insurers are concerned that people are going to try and scam the system and, and take advantage of the pandemic and hope that they can get more time off work, maybe even when they don't need it?
2: Well, you're being a lot more generous to the insurer's motives than I would be. I think it's I I really, frankly, think it's that they see an opportunity to save money because they know that people are more often than not not going to seek legal help. You know, this idea that there is widespread fraud and scamming. I mean, sure, there are people out there, but it is a very small percentage. What you have to keep in mind is that even if you want to take that course, even if you wanted to try and game the system, the insurer would still be entitled If you cut off your benefits, if you weren't complying with all of the treatment uh, regimens, if you weren't getting all of the recommended uh, medications and going for whatever treatments are required, and there are very few people that are going to work that hard to keep up with the kind of treatment that you would need in order to try and game the system. And even if they did, they would still need to have the medical support of the doctors to bring a valid claim. So there are plenty of safeguards in place. This isn't about discouraging fraud. This is about turning a profit for the shareholders.
0: So what is necessary then if somebody is at the stage where they want to go or they need to go on long-term disability? Do you need a doctor's note? Do you need proof that you are doing treatment or you're getting treated for a a certain ailment? What do you need to cross that threshold?
2: You need support from the medical community. So first and foremost, you need to be followed by a family physician who has documented your, your symptoms on an ongoing basis any treatment protocols and this is true for covid or for any disease or injury that you might have uh, they have to send you for all appropriate treatment and testing and you have to follow any treatment guidelines that follow out of that and as long as your doctors are saying that you are disabled from work that you have symptoms that are preventing you from being able to do the essential tasks of your occupation then you're entitled to benefits
0: What if you don't have a family doctor, which is the case for many people in B.C.?
2: It's a big problem. That is a big problem, and I wish I had an easy solution. I mean, the only thing that you can do is try and cobble together the opinions of walk-in clinics or specialists that you might get referred to. But without that, you know, frontline family physician to be able to take point on providing an opinion, it is very difficult, and that's very unfortunate.
0: Uh, and you you mentioned off the top thousands of people because so, I mean, there are thousands of people that are dealing with this and recovering from this virus. Uh, do you think it's going to get worse?
2: Yeah, I do. I think as, you know, as time goes on, I've started to see more and more cases come in that are COVID related. Some of them are these long haul uh, COVID cases, and those are much more recent But even earlier on, we were seeing a lot of cases that are COVID-related, people who had completely unrelated issues that weren't able to go and get treatment. If you're in lockdown, you can't go get treatment. And so some insurers try and take advantage of that. Or you have other people that have never had COVID but have comorbidities that make it virtually impossible for them to leave the house because the risk to them is so high if they get it that they could die that it just doesn't make any sense. So there are a lot of different ways that COVID is having an impact. And all of this is affecting the bottom line of these disability insurers. So they are looking for ways to try and save money. And the first thing that they do is deny.
0: And people will listen to this and say, yeah, but it's in your best interest to tell people this because you're a disability lawyer. You're going to make money when people come to you and and fight this and go and go after the insurance companies. But my guess is you're going to say the best advice is to do exactly that.
2: Absolutely is that. And I'm not going to sit here and pretend that that's not in my best interest, but you you can call me or you can call any other experienced disability lawyer. I'm not here trying to sell my own services. I'm here trying to expose what the insurance companies are trying to do. And what they're trying to do is essentially take benefits from people who've been paying premiums for years that are entitled to these benefits and need them. And it's really quite despicable. It really is when you think about it, because these are people that are in need, that have For years, thought that they had this safety net that was going to be there for them when they needed it. And all of a sudden, they need it and it's not there. And I really think it's a calculated calculated decision by the insurance companies to do that.
0: And do you think they're taking advantage of the fact that there is a pandemic?
2: No, I know they are. I know they are. There's no question about it. I have no doubt in my mind.
0: I mean, it's just got to be so tough. The stress that goes with this, like you said, people that are fearful if they leave their house that they're going to get this virus and if they're immunocompromised or dealing with aging parents or caregivers for people. I mean, there's so much else to deal with and to think about. This is just one more huge stress.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's another reason why bringing a legal claim can be a really good route for a lot of people, because when you're trying to fight the insurance company on your own and you're dealing with everything else, it can really seem very daunting. But when you start the legal process, what a lot of people don't understand, a lot of people think about it as though, oh, all of a sudden it's going to take over my life and this is going to be what my life is about. It's actually the exact opposite. From the point you start it, the insurance companies are no longer able to contact you anymore. So your lawyer should be handling all of that for you and you can focus on your treatment and rehabilitation.
0: All right. Well, it is good advice. And James, I'm glad we talked about this today because as you mentioned, there are more and more people that are unfortunately finding themselves in this situation. Good advice and good information. Thank you so much for being with us.
2: Thank you for having me anytime.